MacCast, Sunday, April 2nd, 2023. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the Mac. Glad to be back here with you for another week of Apple news, hints, tips, tricks, all the goings-ons in our little Apple and Mac community. How are you doing? I hope you are having a wonderful day, week, weekend, whatever it might be. Things are going quite nicely around here at MacCast HQ. Spring is kind of here. We've had a little bit of a fallback into winter, but getting a little chilly this week, but we're we're heading in the right direction. I think things are warming up around here. Hopefully things are warming up for you as well. We're starting to get some flowers and birds and all that fun, fun stuff. But looking over the show notes for today, we have a few things to get into. Worldwide Developer Conference is right around the corner, and we now know what right around the corner is. We're going to get into what's going to be happening at WWDC along with other news. We're also going to get into some OS updates that came out this past week. A little update on Apple's rumored car project, some Apple TV Plus news, including uh, one of Apple's partners. Looks like they're jumping ship. I'll give you all the details and rundown on that. And then we have some iPhone uh, news. iPhones are also kind of right around the corner now that we're in spring you know fall release of iphone 15 and we'll get into some iphone 15 details and that'll round out the news for this week then we have some follow-up on our discussions surrounding backup and ssds we're going to get into displays uh, multiple displays with portable macs we've got a question surrounding that we're going to also talk a little bit more about ssd upgrades and a little tip for you regarding some free stuff yeah we'll talk about uh, freebies and your devices and that will round out this episode of the maccast so should be a good one before we dive in i do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor and that's our sponsor clyde and they have some big news especially if you're an okta user you can get your entire fleet up to 100 percent compliance how Well, if a device isn't compliant, then the user can't log into your cloud apps until they've fixed the problem. It's really that simple. Clyde patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, and that's device compliance. Without Clyde, IT struggles to solve basic problems like everyone's OS and browser being up to date. Unsecured devices are logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Clyde is the only device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with okta the moment clyde's agents detect a problem it alerts users and gives them instructions to fix it if they don't fix the problem within a set time they're blocked clyde's method means fewer support tickets less frustration and most importantly 100 percent fleet compliance Visit collide.com slash maccast to learn more or to book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash maccast. And a big thank you to Collide for their support of the show. 
We now have the dates for Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference. WWDC is going to happen on June 5th through June 9th at Apple Park. It will be an in-person event for those lucky enough to score a ticket for everyone else that is a developer. The conference will be available online and you can access it that way. What we're expecting at Worldwide Developer Conference, obviously it is focused on development and developers. So what they're going to be building with their next generation of apps. And there's often a focus on the operating systems for the rest of us. So we're going to get probably sneak peeks at iOS, iPadOS, tvOS, all version 17, macOS 14. And we'll obviously get the new name, some city in California. Which one will it be? Any guesses? Do you have any? Also, I guess, do you have any... uh, any guesses around what kinds of features we might get? Haven't been hearing a lot about uh, the next generation of iOS or Mac OS. So maybe some minor enhancements, sort of adjustments, speed improvements. I hope some stability improvements. Maybe something that would be really nice is some improvements to system preferences, which wasn't that great, let's be honest, in uh, Mac OS 13 Ventura. So hopefully they'll make some enhancements there. As far as which operating system might get the most updates, sounding like Mark Gurman is hedging his bets in his latest newsletter. He says that watchOS is due for an extensive upgrade, uh, mainly because the hardware hasn't changed too much. So he thinks Apple's going to do something on the operating system software side. Unfortunately for us, he did not mention exactly what that is. So we're left to, again, be guessing. What kind of features would you like to see in watchOS? We are expecting some new health features and sensors and stuff like that. So I would imagine something related to that. But we're just going to have to wait and see. Again, hopefully we'll be getting a sneak peek here in early June. As far as hardware goes, historically, Worldwide Developer Conference isn't really a hardware event, although I think we've gotten new MacBook Airs in recent years. But uh, there is still speculation that we might get a sneak peek at what Apple's up to in AR, VR surrounding their headset. Will we actually see Reality OS or even hear that announced? Who really knows? But uh, maybe not, if you want to believe analyst Ming-Chi Kuo. He says that the date might be pushed back due to uncertainty that the product is ready for prime time and that it will create another iPhone moment for Apple. We know from last week there were some folks saying that it really isn't ready to release and Apple's really pushing hard, specifically Tim Cook, to do some sort of announcement or some sort of preview. Now it seems like maybe they're second-guessing that or it might be a little bit premature. Ming-Chi Kuo claims that Apple has decided to delay their mass production schedule on the device until the middle to end of the third quarter of this year, 2023. A lot of this is because all of the compromises to designs and spec the specs they've reportedly had to make just to get a device out the door. And the concern is that that's going to lead to overall consumer... Uh, apathy around the product. I think it's also going to be because the expected price tag is expected to be really, really high, $3,000 or more, maybe $4,000 US, even higher. And if they've made significant compromises, like having an external battery pack and all this other stuff we've been hearing about, 
it's not going to probably sell that well. And that's sort of what Ming Chi Kuo is thinking. He thinks maybe only 200,000 to 300,000 units will be manufactured and shipped this year. So will Apple release this thing? Will they show it off? It sounds like they probably should hold off and wait until they have something a little bit more refined, a little bit better. But, you know, time will tell. And I guess we will find out here in a couple months. The other piece of hardware that I think some folks are expecting and to me may seem a little bit more likely would be updated versions of the MacBook Air. We've been waiting on Apple's M3 processor and we could see a new MacBook Air at Worldwide Developer Conference. There's all these rumors that Apple will add a 15-inch version to the 13-inch model. So that would be a nice little bump up and some great options for developers, I think. The MacBook Air is a great machine, and if they get a new processor in there, could make a little bit of an impact. I give it kind of a slim chance, but there's also speculation that we could finally see the Apple Silicon version of a Mac Pro. I don't think that announcement is going to happen. I think some folks are also predicting maybe an update to the Mac Studio. Again, yeah, uh, I that that would be an outside chance as how I'm really feeling about that. On the MacBook Air side this week, we do have a report from the site The Elec that Samsung is working on 13.3-inch versions of an OLED display that would likely make its way into a MacBook Air at some point in the future. They think that Apple has picked Samsung because LG, who has reportedly, reportedly been working on OLED panels for future versions of the iPad Pro, the 11-inch and 13-inch, they say wouldn't have the capacity to produce panels in volume for a device like the MacBook Air. We've long had rumors that Apple wants to move all of their iPads, MacBooks, and MacBook Pros over to next-generation display technology. Really, Apple wants micro-LED, but there have been reports that Apple's been struggling with that technology and getting the cost down, so OLED might be the stopgap measure. They say that Samsung also wants to make OLED panels for the 11-inch iPad, but they don't give a date on when this whole move will happen. Very likely, it's not going to be, if there is an announcement at Worldwide Developer Conference, it's not going to be for the MacBook Air this year. Timelines from an analyst like Ross Young, Ming-Chi Kuo, have placed the OLED panels for iPads sometime in maybe 2024, so looking at next year for iPads, and OLED MacBooks seem to be coming maybe in the 2026 timeframe. So even for OLED, it seems like we have a bit of a wait. Question becomes, will Apple be able to get a wrangle on micro LED technology before then? So all this could potentially change, but that's kind of the latest that's happening with Worldwide Developer Conference and maybe what's expected in terms of hardware uh, and software at the event. In a more immediate timeline, Apple this week put out new updates for Macs and all of the iThings in the form of operating system updates. Mac OS Ventura 13.3, iOS 16.4, iPadOS 16.4, TVS, TVOS, excuse me, 16.4, and HomePod OS 16.4 came out along with WatchOS 9.4. Not going to get into all of the new things that are in there, but thought we might hit some highlights. There are 21 new emoji, including jellyfish, which which looks really, really cool, pink heart, and moose. 
How you use those, I don't really know. Well, I guess pink heart is pretty obvious, and that's nice that we finally have that, just a single heart. I think there's also another color in there somewhere. But uh, you can get through all of the new emoji and, I guess, moose your friends if you want to do that. Uh, Books app has the page animation coming back. That's a nice little fun thing. I always enjoyed kind of just fiddling with that. So I guess if you're a little bit fidgety, it's nice to have that back in there. Also, voice isolation on phone calls for iPhone. That might be nice. Kind of mixed results on how that works and how it sounds. A couple people reporting that it sounds a little bit forced or electronic, but nice nice to have nonetheless. Also, you can now find duplicate photos and videos in shared photo libraries. So that'll be nice for cleaning up your shared iPhoto, iCloud photo libraries. Uh, Apple Pencil has a new feature. It's adding tilt and azimuth support for the hover feature. So now when you hover over a, uh, a drawing or something like that with, say, Procreate, you actually get an indicator of what, or can get an indicator, rather, of what your cursor is going to look like before you touch to your artwork and, and change something. So that's going to be a nice little enhancement for artists. Good news on the home side of things. The home app now has the support for its new architecture back. So you can activate that from the home app settings. Once you get updated, just know that all your devices will need to be updated to support that across the board. And I think it gives you a little warning if they're not. And then a nice little accessibility feature coming to tvOS with this update It's called Dim Flashing Lights, and this is an option to automatically dim the display of video when there's lights or strobe effects in that video, and when those are detected. Reason for this is those are the things that can trigger seizures in people with epilepsy. So uh, if you suffer from that, that's a nice new enhancement that will reduce, I think, the, uh, the likelihood that that could happen, which that that's a nice feature. There's also over 30 security updates. So this one actually is a pretty big security release. If uh, you haven't picked this up yet, you probably do want to make sure that you apply that to keep yourself protected. And if you're not on macOS Ventura or the latest versions of iOS, there are security updates for iOS 15, also iPad OS 15, and Safari, where the bulk of the Mac uh, updates were. So... Safari updates for Big Sur and Monterey. So make sure you do your patching, keep yourself protected, and uh, let me know what your uh, what new features you're enjoying in macOS. If I didn't mention one of them, maccast at gmail.com. We've already heard recently from Bloomberg that Apple may have had to kind of scale back its vision for its rumored future car project, self-driving vehicle project. The goal originally was supposedly to have a full autonomous vehicle without a steering wheel or pedals, kind of like a car that you just hop in, almost like a living room on wheels where everybody could sit around and just enjoy themselves, enjoy the ride as the car took over for you. The original price point was expected to be really, really high at release. We were hearing numbers like, $120,000 or more. 
Now it's being said that they've had to go a more traditional route, scale things back in terms of not only the vehicle design, it's going to be more traditional, have pedals and a steering wheel and all that sort of stuff. It will have limited self-driving ability, so not full autonomy and a price point under $100,000. The hope is still to be able to launch something in or around 2026. So we're still, you know, a few years off from actually seeing this thing hit the market. They've been working on it for a really, really long time. It's a bummer that they're kind of scaling back the full uh, autonomous functionality. I think that would be kind of the, the, the thing that would make a big splash, but we'll have to wait and see. Again, it's way far off. I always find that it's kind of hard to talk about the stuff that's speculating so far out because day-to-day as technology advances and changes, things can change. And as you've known, if you've been following the story, it's changed several, several times over the past probably how many years have we been talking about this? At least five years, maybe even longer. Um, this week, according to Economic Daily News, they say the vehicle will, uh, like most already do, rely heavily on LiDAR sensors. And they say that Apple's current partner for sensors for the iPhone and iPads, when Mao, is going to be supplying them for Apple's new vehicle. The piece does note, however, it's going to take a little bit of a uh, a little bit of time for them to ramp up to vehicle grade sensors from just sensors in iPhones and iPads. The guess is that they will have a 2026 launch, so they've got a little bit of time, and uh, hopefully they'll get up and running with that. But all that tech coming together, looking like if you're hoping to uh, purchase an Apple vehicle sometime in your future, it's going to be around 2026 when you'll be able to do that. Imagine Entertainment, the entertainment company headed by Ron Howard and Brian Grazier. They had an exclusive first look deal with Apple. They've been producing content for Apple TV Plus, but it's looking like that relationship is coming to an end. We got news this week that they've now moved over to Amazon Studios, according to the Hollywood Reporter. So that's a little bit of a loss for Apple TV+, Plus, but we still have a lot of great content kind of in the lineup, and Apple continues to do deals. So I don't think it's going to hurt them too much, but did happen this week. Apple has also announced the theatrical release date for their new Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon. That one is expected to make a pretty big big splash for Apple Studios and Apple TV+. Plus. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, Jesse Plemons, Lily Gladstone, and Brandon Fraser. Some pretty big uh, big names in this film, along with others. It will debut on Oct- in October 2023 in theaters worldwide, with a limited release starting on October 6th, followed by a wide release on October 20th. They did not share information for the date when it will land on Apple TV Plus's streaming service, though. So sometime after that, I would imagine before the end of the year, maybe around the holiday time frame that kind of lines up with uh, with the dates there. So if you've been waiting for that film, that's when you will be able to catch it. And then there was code found in tvOS this past week with the release of the 16.5 beta that hints at an interesting feature I'm guessing that will be uh, really targeted at some of Apple's new sports content. The feature is called Multi-View Stream. 
it's going to allow for multiple picture-in-picture picture in picture supporting up to four streams simultaneously so that's a cool new feature and it was interesting this week because we also had a report from TechCrunch that said apple this year acquired an ai video compression company called wave one that reportedly happened earlier this year now apple didn't make any kind of an announcement an announcement they often don't when they acquire smaller companies but a former Wave 1 executive said that they did sell to Apple. The website was shut down back in January, and many of the Wave 1 employees are now working for Apple. So everything's kind of lining up to point that Apple did buy this company. What's interesting about this in relationship to the picture-in-picture multi-stream rumor is that the tech for Wave 1 uses AI to analyze and optimize video compression and decompression algorithms, prioritizing important content, allowing the more important stuff to stay in focus and and high res, and the less stuff to get heavier compression, resulting in much smaller file sizes. I would imagine a kind of technology that could help you drive multiple streams uh, with less uh, processing power and bandwidth. So... That could be playing into that. Also, just in general, Apple wanting to probably improve features and functionality for video recording, say, on iPhones. So a lot of places where this technology could be applied. But just interesting how the rumors are sort of lining up. So new stuff coming to tvOS and multi-streams and, and Apple TV+. And then finally, on the audio side of things, HomePod and HomePod Mini are going to be officially available in Singapore this week. That's according to Apple. This is going to be starting on April 6th. Pre-orders have already begun. Those happened back on March 30th. So Apple, again, I think we had a rollout last week, another rollout this week. So continuing to roll out HomePod and HomePod Mini globally. And then finally in the news for this week, we have some rumors and reports surrounding the upcoming iPhone 15, i15 Pro models. An anonymous source over on the Mac Rumors forums is claiming that the new iPhone Pro models will have a special microprocessor that will handle functionality and features uh, when the device is in extreme low power or even powered off. The source doesn't have a long track record, but they did leak accurate information about the Dynamic Island last year, so... We'll take this one with a little grain of salt, but it could be a possibility. They say the chip would replace functionality that is currently handled by Apple's main SoC, the super low energy mode. So that's stuff that drives things like the always-on display in the current iPhone 15 Pro. They say part of the reason for the new processor is likely the rumored switch to the new solid-state capacitive touch, uh, sleep, wake, and volume buttons. The chip, according to them, would be able to quickly handle detecting button presses, and the leaker claims that Apple is testing functions with both taptic and non-taptic presses. They also claim that the chip would be capable of handling 3D touch-like functionality, so that's where, you know, the harder you press on the button, it can detect that, and you can have sort of multi-level pressing, so there could be some, some interesting applications there, especially with the uh, integrated volume rocker kind of button. In addition to the button stuff, the report says that the chip may also handle other low-power functionality, things like Bluetooth, 
Find My, and Apple Pay Express Transit. Later in the forum post, the poster was questioned about the use of gloves and cases with the new uh, solid state buttons and claimed that iOS 17 would have a sensitivity setting that would allow you to adjust the buttons accordingly and so that it could handle cases and gloved usage just fine. With what I know about tactic technology, I'm not sure how a sensitivity setting plays into that, but I would have to imagine that if Apple is planning to go with solid state buttons and capacitive touch, that they would have kind of wanted to address that because a lot of places in this world where I live now, you do have to wear gloves quite frequently. So it can be a little bit of a hassle, although I guess we have a lot of uh, gloves already that have that kind of taptic support in them. So maybe it's not as much an issue here in 2023 as it was way, way back when. But we'll have to wait and see. But supposedly, Apple has kind of thought about this stuff, and uh, it should just work. According to the French site Mac Generation, they say that Apple is going to expand the removal of the SIM tray in favor of the eSIM on this year's iPhone, at least over in France. This was a feature, quote-unquote, that Apple uh, released in the U.S. with the release of the iPhone 14s this past year, the move to no SIM tray and just reliance on eSIM. Supposedly, they're going to roll this out more globally now. Uh, if you're getting an iPhone in France, that's the same iPhone that's really used throughout the EU and over in the U.K. So it's believed that the move to eSIM for this year's iPhone could be much wider than what Apple did last year. Originally, the concern around eSIM was the lack of support for, say, traveling, kind of swapping SIMs in and out. It makes it a little less convenient. Also, a lot of carriers were not supporting eSIM, at least early on. That has kind of changed. I think it's a little bit easier now. Have had reports from people who have iPhone 14s that say even going over to Europe with an eSIM hasn't really been a problem and in some ways is a little bit more convenient because you can just sort of sign up and swap out your your sim so what do you think about this move is that going to cause a problem over in uh, europe where people maybe travel around a little bit more uh, or is it going to make things a little bit easier i'd love to know your opinion maccast at gmail.com and then ming chi kuo's latest comments about this year's iphone 15 pro max say that it's going to feature a periscope telephoto lens and that lens is going to be supplied exclusively by apple partner largan a telescoping lens uses a series of lenses and prisms along with i think a mirror to allow the telephoto lens to be housed inside the phone so what that means for you and me is that we can get much larger zoom without the need for a large external telescoping lens 10x zoom or maybe even more now, Quo's report was really focused on the fact that Apple got the supplier to reduce the part cost to around just $4 US from 5 to 450 something like that. So it's going to save Apple a lot of money, but also results in a very thin profit margin, if at all, for Largan. So they might struggle a little bit, but for us, the good news is that this year's iPhone 15 Pro Max should have a much improved optical zoom 
only going to be in that one model, unfortunately, but it is believed the feature may, or maybe not, depending on who you talk to, roll out to other iPhone models sometime next year. And that's typically what Apple does, is they'll roll out higher-end features to the more expensive higher-end devices, and then those slowly make their way back to other devices like Dynamic Island, which only was on the iPhone 14 Pro models this year, but is expected to be on all of the iPhone models uh, this year. So again, we'll have to wait and see what happens with the iPhone 15s, but uh, there's some of the latest stuff for you. And with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank another show sponsor, and that is Factor. Power up for springtime with Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. You can get nutritious, chef-prepared meals delivered straight to your door, leaving you time and energy to tackle everything on your to-do list. Look and feel your best in time for warmer weather with calorie-smart meals around 550 calories or less. And if you're too busy to cook with Factor, you can skip the trip to the grocery store and skip the chopping, prepping, and cleaning up too. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes, so all you have to do is heat and enjoy. And really, that convenience of not having to prep a meal or more importantly, plan, that's always a fight around my family, what are we going to eat this week, is something that I love about Factor. My family is also making very conscious choices to eat more healthy foods, and that makes Factor a perfect choice. Factor has delicious, flavor-packed meals that help you live life to the fullest. You can choose from keto, vegetarian, and vegan options, calorie smart, and protein plus on the menu each week. They're all prepared by chefs and approved by dietitians, and each meal has all the ingredients you need to feel satisfied all day long. With 34 chef-prepared, dietitian-approved weekly options, there's always something new to try. You can enjoy meals for any time of the day, including breakfast options with egg bites, smoothies, and more. Plus, you can replenish your snack supply with an assortment of 45, more than 45 add-ons. And if you want to cut back on takeout, get Factor instead. Not only is Factor cheaper than takeout, but meals are ready faster than restaurant delivery in just two minutes. Plus, the time and money you save, you can put towards planning activities for when the weather warms up. In fact, some of my family actually prefers eating vegetarian and vegan, so that's a snap with Factor. Each meal is prepared by chefs and approved by dietitians, so you know that your Factor meals have all of the ingredients you want and nothing you don't. So if you're looking to mix it up, you can even add protein to select vegan and vegetarian meals each week. Get Factor and enjoy clean eating without the hassle. Simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered to your door, ready in just two minutes, no prep, no mess. Head to factormeals.com slash maccast50 and use code MACCAST50 to get 50% off your first box. That's code MACCAST50 at factormeals.com slash MACCAST50 to get 50% off your first box. And a huge thank you to Factor for their support of the show. 
On the past few episodes, we've been talking a little bit about uh, backup and specifically whether you should be using a traditional hard drive or a SSD for your backups and does it matter and where you know are advantages, disadvantages and stuff like that. In case you missed it, go back and listen to the past few episodes. But this week, our friend Robert wrote in with a little bit of a follow-up and kind of a, I guess, a tentative warning about using SSDs or really any media for archival storage. Because one of the things that I talked about was the fact that I do have archival storage for some of uh, some of my content. Now, when I say archival storage, for me, a lot of that is on uh, NAS drives. I have a Synology. I also have Turobos. And so I kind of keep data on those devices. Um, mainly a big part of my archival content, as you might imagine, is uh, all of the raw data and recordings for the MacCast. So like I record in GarageBand, so I have all the source files there and, and any audio comments that I that I roll into that, all that sort of stuff. So I back that up. But uh, for older episodes and stuff like that, I have those on multiple NAS drives in my home, as well as, of course, offline storage over at Backblaze. Um, But what, uh, what Robert wanted to warn about was taking those drives, whether they be SSD or any other kind of media, and storing those offline. Say you rotate them into a safe deposit box, which some people do, or take them off-site, or uh, just have you know trays of CD-ROMs that you've backed up data onto, and you have maybe old documents and papers and stuff like that. And what he's warning about is something that we talked about uh, in previous episodes of the MacCast, but probably haven't talked about in a while. It's what I call data rot, right? The fact that any drives that you have data stored on that are not powered up or in or in use can eventually develop data rot. The, the, the media just breaks down. A different media breaks down at different times. We're not going to get into all of the details, but something that Robert had noticed was that in the documentation for most SSDs, so if you've been using solid-state drives in this way, they claim that they're not rated for offline storage longer than a year, meaning being disconnected from power and not in use. Now, there's a lot of research if you go out and look look this up, and I did some of it, a lot of research and tests showing that data on SSDs that are powered down, kind of removed or taken out of a device, something like that, could last up to five years, but no manufacturer seems to want to assure you that it's going to last any longer than a year. So this is just something to be aware of. We don't need to panic. Um, But if you're thinking about archival storage, just be aware of this. And again, it's not just SSDs that suffer from this. Magnetic media, traditional hard drives, tape drives, all can have this sort of degradation over time. And if you've ever had a set of old floppies that you've tried to go back and use, you probably know about this. I have an old Apple IIgs that still runs, but it's hard to get the uh, the software, the the three three and a half inch floppies, to actually all work. Some do, some don't. They've been sitting around in a box for a long, long time. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about data rot. And even optical media, things like DVDs and DVDs and CDs, those can break down. the The surfaces can fade. The emulsions break down over time. It's just something that happens. So. 
this is something to be aware of. It's something to think about when you're doing archival storage. It's also why we always say you need to have multiple forms of backup. So you need to have online, offline storage, archival storage, all that sort of stuff. And then more specifically for archival media storage, you're going to have to think about media shifting or moving that material around to keep it quote unquote fresh. So how many of us do have that box of three and a half inch floppies or a giant tray of old CD-ROM data with files and stuff on it? Have you ever tried to go back to that? There's another aspect of this, not only the data just getting old and crusty, but also the fact of, do you have a device that can even read that media, right? Do you still have a CD-ROM or a DVD drive that you can actually put a disc into? Do you have a three and a half inch floppy that can connect to your Mac? I actually don't. I have three and a half flop, three and a half inch floppies lying around with data on them. Whether that data is good or not remains to be seen, but I don't even know because I can't pop it into a drive. So if you have data that's archived that you care about, make sure you're moving it, make sure you're putting it on newer forms of media, make sure that it's still good and make sure you have it backed up in multiple places. So that's the only thing to remember. And I think that was a great thing for Robert to bring up and, and remind the community about. Also related to this, I got some feedback from listener Dan about SSDs and using them as backup drives, specifically around the speed of SSDs and getting the best and most performance out of them. And here is what Dan experienced. Hey, Adam, how you doing? I hope you're well. This is Dan from the Bay Area. I just listened to your show about hard drives, external hard drives, so I thought maybe I would... Um, share with you my experience and something I learned. I don't know if the uh, audience would get any help out of it, but I just want to let you know if you were not aware. Um, I was looking for a time machine backup, and of course I got an SSD. I know they're not necessarily uh, important to have something that fast for a time machine, but I've kind of moved on from from hard drives at this point. Um, So what I chose was the Samsung uh, T7 Shield. It's a two terabyte drive. So I plugged it in um, into my, I have a I have a MacBook Pro M1 Max with the Thunderbolt 4 ports. And I was not getting the advertised speeds. So they're, they're advertising at 1050 megabytes per second. So what I was getting is about 860 megabytes per second write and about 700 megabytes per second read. And I did everything I could. I reformatted it. I made sure it was formatted for APFS. Everything I could do. And just wasn't getting those speeds. So I contacted Samsung. They were saying that, well, we don't know why that's going on. And, you know, maybe it's Apple's fault. Okay. And so after I did a little more research and watched a couple of YouTube videos, they were all just as stumped as I was. But I found out after a couple of uh, other websites I visited that this drive is designed for USB 3.2 Gen 2. Now, it does say that on the box, but it doesn't state the rest of the information, which they should, that the port on your Mac or your computer in general has to be USB 3.2 Gen 2. So even if it's 3.1 Gen 2, it won't go the full speed. I saw some PCs on YouTube that had USB 3.2 Gen 2, and they were getting the full speed of 1,050 megabytes per second. And so uh, so even if you have the faster port, 
the Thunderbolt 4, it is backwards compatible, but you will not receive the full uh, advertised speeds unless you have a USB 3.2 Gen 2 port on your computer. So I'm perfectly fine with the fact I'm not getting the full speeds because of what I'm using it for. But just in case someone else buys one of these external drives just for you know, transferring files, things like that, on their Mac and they're not receiving that, um, hopefully this will help them. Because I don't think Apple has any uh, computers, even maybe the Mac Studio, that has a USB 3.2 Gen 2 port. So just want to let you know about that. Okay, uh, love your show as always, and talk to you soon. Ah, uh, yeah, damn, the dirty truth about USB 3, something that we've actually covered in the past. The fact that there are multiple versions, multiple revs, and they all mean different things, and they're all super, super confusing. And you're absolutely right. The Mac does not have support for USB 3.2 Gen 2. And I think specifically in this case, it might be the Gen 2X2. So just to recap, in case uh, people missed it, USB uh, 3.0 came out and it had something called super speed USB. It was five gigabits per second in terms of the transfer rate. And then they came out with USB 3.1 and that actually had two different versions or two revs, Gen 1 and Gen 2. And USB 3.1 Gen 1 was the five gigabits per second, basically the same as 3.0 with the super speed moniker on it. And then you also got USB 3.1 Gen 2, which was 10 gigabits per second, and that's what they called Super Speed Plus. Then they came out with the USB 3.2 spec, uh, supposed to be clear, but turned out to really not be clear. And that had USB 3.2 Gen 1, which was that 5 gigabit per second, still called USB Super Speed USB. They also had USB 3.2 Gen 2, which is 10 gigabits per second, the Super Speed Plus, and then added on top of that USB 3.2 Gen 2 2x2 or 2x2, which is using a two lane bus, and that's what enabled them to get speeds up to 20 gigabits per second. So, all of this dependent upon specifically the kind of USB spec that your device supported. And, you know, just to layer on the confusion, all of this, USB also has the different connection standards like USB-A, USB, you know, B-C, which is what we use now. USB-C, as we know, is also the same connector that's used for uh, Thunderbolt, uh, the current generations of Thunderbolt, Thunderbolt 3 and Thunderbolt 4. So all of this getting confusing. But what we're talking about here in terms of USB is the actual spec the protocol for the technology and yes as dan found out to get the latest and greatest speeds you have to have a computer and chips and stuff that support the latest and greatest spec now we've gone all the way up to usb4 with modern max and usb4 is basically thunderbolt 3 and thunderbolt 4 in terms of the speed up to 40 gigabits per second but again it can you know also support usb standards and the usb spec over that same connector and you do need to have the uh the most latest generation support to be able to do that and apple as dan pointed out does not really support the latest and greatest usb 3.2 so in my mind if you absolutely want to get the highest performance highest speed 
out of your external drives, then you really should be looking for ones that support support Apple's Thunderbolt Thunderbolt 4 technology or USB 4, which is basically um, functionally equivalent, as, at least as far as I understand it. Now, it's all confusing to me. I'm not an expert in it, but uh, it's basically been what I've been told. But, you know, when I'm researching stuff, I'm looking for USB 3 or Thunderbolt 3, excuse me, or Thunderbolt 4 support. Thunderbolt 3 and Thunderbolt 4 are pretty much in terms of speed functionally equivalent. Thunderbolt 4 added the ability to do like hubs and multi-devices and stuff like that, something else we've talked about here on the show. Um, But the other thing around all this too is you need to make sure also that you're using the right quality and kind of cables, also the right length of cables to get the best speed. I think um, to get the fastest speeds, you need shorter cables. I think only a 0.8 meter cable is supported for the 40 gigabit per second even Thunderbolt. So just be aware of all of that stuff. We're not going to go fully into that rabbit hole as we've done it here before, but uh, very important thing pointed out there by Dan, you know, make sure you're paying attention to specs and all that sort of stuff and what's required to support that. If you're trying to get the most performance out of your, uh, your Macs and your devices. Something else that came up this past week was some questions surrounding uh, the latest MacBook Airs, the M2 MacBook Air, which is an awesome machine that actually M1 is great as well, and support for uh, external displays, specifically multiple external displays. Because when it comes to displays, the new M2 machines or M1 machines in terms of the MacBook Air have really fallen behind their Intel ancestors because they only support a single external display up to a 6K resolution at 60 hertz, according to the spec. Now, Apple, you may remember, kind of promised to remedy this situation when the M1 MacBook Air came out, but that hasn't changed. We got the new M2 version, and it's the same uh, display limit. So I wouldn't hold my breath on Apple fixing this anytime soon. But the reason this is coming up is I received an email from David who has switched over completely from from Windows to Mac and Apple, complete with an iPhone and an iPad. So congratulations, David. He got a shiny new M2 MacBook Air. I have to admit I'm a little bit jealous, David, but uh, congratulations on that as well. But David is running into this limitation and would like to use multiple displays with his new M2 MacBook Air and is looking for possible workarounds. So he emailed me asking if it was even possible to do. And the answer is yes, there is a way to get two or more displays connected to an M1 or M2 MacBook or MacBook Air um, that only has that single display limit from Apple. But the solution involves a mix of technology that one is not technically supported by Apple. And two, you may find, as David is, that your experience and mileage may vary. What it basically relies on is a combination of hardware adapters and uh, or docks and then third-party drivers and software, uh, which needs to be installed on your Mac and then can basically leverage the Mac's CPU and GPU to actually drive the display. And what we're talking about here is uh, display link technology. I think there's another another technology, but display link is the one you're going to most uh, commonly find. And the key is 
that you need to make sure that you get a USB-C or Thunderbolt dock or adapter that supports multiple display technologies, including um, DisplayLink. And specifically, the combination of technologies you want is something called Alt Mode, which allows USB-C ports to transfer data and video uh, across multiple interfaces like DisplayPort and then DisplayLink technology. Now, the Mac has support for uh, alt mode over USB-C, so that's how we're able to do displays over USB-C and Thunderbolt ports and stuff like that. Um, but the missing link here is support for um, DisplayLink. And again, DisplayLink is software drivers that you'll need to download for your Mac. They are available. I'll have a link to them in the show notes at maccast.com. The latest version is 1.8.1, and that currently is compatible with Mac OS Ventura, Monterey, and uh, and Big Sur. But what can happen is as Apple updates their stuff, because they technically don't support DisplayLink, that stuff can break. It can get a little bit wonky. Display Link tries to, or excuse me, Display Link. Display Link tries to stay ahead of that, and they are pretty good at releasing new updates and versions. But just be aware, if you go down this path, you're going to be fighting with drivers. And, you know, a big advantage of having a Mac is plug and play, right? Everything's supposed to just be supported. So this is kind of a workaround. Be aware of what you're kind of getting into, but you can actually do it. And some people have had pretty decent success with this. Others, I I get emails, struggle with it. And I think a big part of it is looking at uh, and picking brands of adapters and hardware and stuff like that, that support this technology and support it well. So just be, uh, you know, go in with your head, uh, head up and know what you're getting into. But basically, once you have the drivers and a supported dock, you can just connect things up like normal. Typically, you're going to connect the displays over a Thunderbolt or a USB-C port. Uh, that's going to use DisplayPort. You can also connect to the docks using HDMI ports. And so you'll find flavors and versions of this where it's got DisplayPort support, it's got HDMI, it's got a combination. doesn't really matter. You're just looking for, um, again, multiple display connectors on there that support alt mode and display link. And uh, the first display is going to connect, in the case of the MacBook Air, using alt mode technology, probably uh, HDMI or DisplayPort. That's going to be basically a direct pipeline to the main GPU. It's supported out of the box. You don't need any drivers or anything special for that. And then any additional displays are going to have to rely on the DisplayLink software and your Mac, and that's going to leverage the CPU and GPU to drive the display. And so technically this should all work, but as even David discovered, because he has this solution, he was finding that he would connect two HDMI displays over DisplayPort, and the solution was kind of buggy. It was actually slowing down his Mac. It was requiring frequent restarts. The slowness comes from the fact that it does have to leverage you know, the processors in your Mac. So it's going to steal some processor. It's going to steal some GPU to drive all of this stuff. And, um, you know, now you have the DisplayLink software with the Mac on the Mac sort of doing all of this extra heavy lifting. And, and that does take a toll. Now, I don't have personally any direct experience with these solutions. Like I said, I've heard from people who have had success with this. I've heard from people who have struggled with this. So I would make sure that you're looking at a good, reputable brand of uh, adapter. There's a lot of hubs and adapters out there. A lot of them just, you know, kind of low-level Chinese stuff that's cheap. 
Um, not saying that those don't work, but people, you know, have had varied experiences. I was doing a little bit of research on this. Um, you know, I like stuff from Anchor. Uh, they technically even will mention that, you know, it's not recommended that you do this with their devices, but I think a lot of them do support that. Um, a company called Pluggable is a brand with, I think, a decent reputation in our community. And they do have a solution for M1 and M2 Max that support 4K and HD uh, 1920 by 1080 displays. I'll have a link to that in the show notes at maccast.com if you want to check that out. So that's one that you might try. I'd be curious uh, if you're in our community and you're using a display link solution to drive multiple displays with a Mac that technically doesn't support them. I'd love to know your experiences and what products and things you're using. So if you could send in recommendations, send in uh, experiences, I uh, welcome the feedback, maccast at gmail.com. But all of this as a way of saying, yes, it's possible to get more than one external display working on an M1, M2 MacBook Air, technically not supported, could be more trouble than it's worth. If you actually really need multiple external display support and you don't want to have to hassle with all of this, you're probably better off going for something like a 14-inch or a 16-inch MacBook Pro or the new M2 Mac Mini, which Apple does support natively with the technology that's built into your device without additional drivers, software, or anything like that. So just be aware of what you're getting into. You can kind of push the limits of things always, or it seems like always, but uh, maybe you don't want to if you're looking for that seamless plug-and-play, no-hassle experience. But uh, there you go, David. That's sort of uh, the state of things as it relates to your M2 MacBook Air. And now moving back to the subject of SSDs in a little bit of a different uh, in a different way, Javier wrote me and said, hey, I'm upgrading my 2015 27-inch IMAX Fusion Drive to an SSD drive. Really a great upgrade if you're looking to increase the performance of an older Mac, but he has a question about it. He says, hey, how do I transfer all the same data from the old Fusion Drive to the new SSD before installing it? And this is a great question, right? Because how do I get the data onto that so that once I swap over, I can just boot up and everything is running the way I want? And the main thing is going to be, Javier, that you prep your new drive before installing it into your iMac. And so essentially, you're going to need a way to connect the bare SSD drive to your Mac so that you can do things like format it, install the operating system, or clone to it, depending upon how you want to upgrade or restore from backup. There's lots of different options, but the key is you got to get it connected to the iMac ahead of time so that you can perform all of these operations. And of course, you just have a bare drive, so what are you going to do? Well, there are a few options, um, kind of three main ones that I can think of. Maybe some folks have some other creative solutions. But um, you can get a bare drive adapter. I've used one from newer tech called a universal drive adapter for years. Basically plugs into, uh, you know, the, the, the drive itself and then supplies a USB connection that you can use to connect to your Mac. I've used them for years. I think it's a handy little tool to have in your toolbox and you just basically hook up the drive. It's got its own power supply that you plug into the drive and then it just mounts on your Mac 
and uh, you can perform all your operations on it. It's pretty easy. Another option would be to just get an enclosure. So you could get just a USB-C, you know, drive enclosure, pop the drive in there, connect that to your Mac, and then do your work, and then uh, you have uh, an enclosure. You take your drive out and uh, install it your Mac, and now you might even be able to take your old drive, put that in your enclosure, and then use that as another form of backup. So that's kind of a handy way to go. Pretty, pretty convenient. And then there's also a device uh, that I think I and myself, a lot of people call them drive toasters. I actually have one of these as well. It's it's from Newer Tech. Um, and it basically is a little box that has slots on the top of it that you can pop bare drives into. So like uh, three and a half inch or two and a half inch drives, they usually support both of them. Again, connects to your Mac via USB and uh, you can pop drives in, you can eject them out. And so that's another kind of handy thing to have uh, for working with uh, bare external drives. And, you know, when that's sitting there, you could also pop a drive in there and again, use it for storage, use it for backup, in addition to, you know, using it to prep a drive for installation into a Mac. But basically, any one of these solutions will, will work. Once it's connected to your Mac, you simply format the drive, you can install Mac OS onto it, and then install it into your iMac, boot from it, and then you could use like Time Machine or uh, something else to migrate everything over to your SSD. So take the old drive, you know, connect it back to to your Mac, and then uh, you know with one of these solutions, and then do Migration Assistant or whatever it would be to copy the data back. You could also just ahead of time clone. Uh, all of your existing Mac over to the drive with something like Carbon Copy Cloner, make it bootable, make sure you can do that before installing it into your drive or into your Mac. So lots of different options uh, and ways to go about this once you have uh, one of these ways to connect the bare drive ahead of time. So basically that's all you need to do. And again, good luck with your upgrade. Uh, doing the iMac upgrade is a little bit trickier, I think, than some of the other ones, but I think you're going to be very, very happy with the performance once you get that done. And it's going to breathe new life into that 2015 iMac. You'll probably be able to get quite a few more years of use out of it, which is really, really awesome. So good luck and uh, thanks for the question. Okay, last thing that I have for you today is a little bit of a tip, a little handy tip for accessing some potential freebies that you might have on your iPhone. And I'm specifically talking about a big thing a lot of carriers are doing now is they're offering free or discounted access to Apple services, things like Apple Arcade, Apple TV Plus, all those sorts of things. And different carriers have different offers, so it can be a little bit confusing. And you may or may not know hey, is my carrier, does my carrier actually have an offer, uh, something that I can access and, and get for free with my current uh, cell phone contract or cell phone plan? And uh, it turns out now you can actually check to see if you have access to any of those directly from your iPhone. I think I saw this tip over on 9to5Mac, so credit to them. I didn't know this was a feature, but since I didn't know, I'm sharing it with you. So you can go into your iPhone. I don't know if this requires the latest OS update. It might, so just be aware, but you can go into settings, 
You can tap on your name at the top to access your accounts, and then you can tap on subscriptions. And normally this would show you things like any uh, app subscriptions you have or Apple subscriptions you're subscribed to with your iCloud account. But if you scroll down toward the bottom, uh, you'll see there is also a section for your carrier plan benefits. And you could tap on that. Now it might say your cellular plan, like it did for me, your cellular plan doesn't include any new subscriptions to Apple services. And that could either mean that uh, your carrier benefit has expired, but it could also mean if you're like me and you just pay for the full Apple One plan, that you're already covered by what you're paying. So you don't need the offer from your carrier. But if your carrier does offer you some freebies, maybe free Apple Music or something like that, you should see it listed there. So I thought that was a handy little tip, cool little thing that I didn't know about. And uh, you know, check that out. See if you got some, some free Apple services. But with that, that is going to do it for the show for this week. Before I leave you, I want to thank a couple of our show supporters. Bandwidth for the for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. They are at BackbeatMedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast@gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM9, and you can leave a voicemail. Uh, if you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the maccast or find me on Instagram, just maccast on Instagram. But that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. Mm-hmm.